0: see, one of the things that a retreat does, but by the way, if, if you ever have a pastor that comes back from a men's retreat and the next week says, I want to take a few minutes and tell you about it, that means they haven't prepared their sermon for that week and they're just going to summarize. <laughs> that's, that's not what I'm doing. That's not what I'm doing. Um, but I do have to say that coming off something like a men's retreat or a time away, uh, it refreshes the perspective of what's most important. And when we talk about the aspect of compromise, we're really faced front and center with the idea that There's going to be a point in time when your life is going to be reduced to an adjective. There'll be a point in time that after you close your eyes in death, and as uh, people gather and celebrate and they tell stories about where you worked or what you did or what you accomplished, eventually those nouns and adjectives get replaced by just who you were, the character things. No longer it's about what you did or where you went, but so and so was a giving person, so and so was an unbelievably nice person. So-and-so really sacrificed a lot for us, and our lives get reduced to adjectives. Maybe so-and-so was a stubborn person. So-and-so, you know, and, and our lives get reduced to just those character traits about us. And so what we, we've said all along through this, if that's going to be true one day about us, <coughs> how can we allow sometimes all of the distractions of what we're doing and the roles in which we occupy and the items in our, our to-do list becomes so much more important for us than what we know is going to be the final evaluator of our lives, and that is aspects of our character. And so I want to be a man of God who gets to the end and not only hears, well done, good and faithful servant, but who also knows that I didn't limp towards the finish line. I didn't run out of gas on the final lap and coast across the line. Uh, But I want to be someone that without compromise lives in such a way... (coughs) that right up until the end, wherever that is and whenever that takes place, uh, I will be found faithful. I think that's what we all want inside of our relationships with our spouses and with our kids, inside of aspects of ministry, even in just obedience in relationship to uh, the God who loves us and gave his life for us. And so when we talk about compromise, yes, sometimes we think of the big things, like the the big compromise, the big moral failure, the big uh, you know cataclysmic event that took place in someone's life, but I hope that you'll see when we talk about compromise it begins with and it's sometimes highlighted by some of the little subtle things inside of our lives. So I want to invite you into uh, one of our compromises inside of our home. By the way, the only time we talk about compromise in a good way is when two entities are negotiating and somehow everyone wins when both of them take a little loss for the greater win. That's not what we're talking about this morning. When we talk about it in our lives, it's almost always a negative thing. You don't want to be somebody who has compromised in any respect inside of your life. So, for the sake of making this real, I'm going to tell you about one of our compromises. Uh, You don't have to squirm in your seat. It's not going to be that bad. Uh, But each and every evening when our kids go to bed and we say goodnight to them, and we come downstairs, uh, Rachel and I talk about, and frequently this phrase is used, we're going to go to bed early tonight. I'm tired, it's a long week, got a big day tomorrow. We're going to go to bed early, we're going to go to bed early, we're going to go to bed early. There's one thing that stands in the way of going to bed early. It's not even that old, it's not been around that long, but it is a powerful force in our universe. And It's called Netflix. (laughs) Netflix kicks in and I think you can best explain this the way uh, Jerry Seinfeld did, that there's a battle between night guy and morning guy. Night guy always wins in that moment because you're really not that tired. It's going to be Okay. It's just another day. You could take a nap. Everything's going to be fine. And so 20-minute episode turns into a couple, turns into three. Uh, One more, just one more episode, and there's a compromise that's made to the point that eventually you go to bed, only to find out the next day morning guy is not very happy about the choices night guy made. (laughs) Because morning guy knows there's not enough coffee to rebound this thing. You know, it's going to be a tough day. And so that's not a big moral failure type of thing. That's not something big that anyone's going to say that's costing us inside of our lives. But you know what it's like that sometimes when we want and when we value and when we prioritize A, B, and C and yet there lives inside of our life something that's either easier or more attractive in the moment to live X, Y, and Z. We would know, we would state this. we, We could write it on paper. We could laminate it and put it on the wall. We want our lives to stand for A, B, and C. But inside the moment, it's easier and more attractive to go for X, Y, and Z. Again, whether that's a, something that doesn't really matter and it's okay, or whether that's the things that really do matter inside of our lives, that's just the nature of what compromise is. And so as we uh, flip through the book of Judges, we could probably see this taking place, uh, but I think it's one of the big things that we see in Samson. Every one of these words we could apply to Samson. He is such a mixed bag. There's so many just different things going on inside of his life. But I want to point out, because I think Samson's life is not just the product of one bad relationship. And her name was Delilah. Okay, okay. so I just had to say that. Samson's end result of his life is not just because he stumbled into one bad relationship. But throughout his life, there's this mixed bag that, that takes place uh, inside of his life. Samson's life begins. It's the only judge inside of the book of Judges where there's a prophecy or a pronouncement and a, or just an, an announcement of his life before he is born. You'll know that inside of Genesis with, you know, God comes to Abraham, you're going to have a son, comes to Isaac, you're going to have a son. And, you know, with Jeremiah, with Isaiah, with John the Baptist, with Jesus, throughout scripture we read occasionally of, of where there is a birth announcement given before the baby is even conceived or born. That happens in Samson's life. His dad's name was Zorah, and Zorah had a wife who was unnamed inside of scripture. They were without uh, children. Angel of the Lord appeared to his wife and said, you're going to have a baby. You're going to have a baby, and he's going to redeem Israel from the Philistines who are occupying the land, 40 years of, of Philistines just in the land that's supposed to be ours, in the tribe of Dan up in the northern part of, of the nation of Israel. Uh, it's time to get rid of the enemy. Your son, your flesh and blood is going to do that. Because he is born for such a noble purpose, there are some things that need to be true about him. You're going to take a Nazarite vow on his behalf, which means three things. He's going to be disciplined in his appetites. He's not going to have any wine, any strong drink, or even any grapes. Numbers chapter 6 details this. He's going to be distinctive in his appearance. No razor will ever touch his head and he's going to be discreet in his associations. He's to remain clean, not having contact with anything that is dead or any impurity. And so this baby who is the result of a promise of a blessing of God miraculously given inside of your life for a noble purpose to redeem Israel against the Philistines, I want him to be set apart to be mine to take this Nazarite vow inside of his life. And so they uh, agree to that. There's actually a second time that the angel shows up, and this time talks to Zorah as well as his wife. They build a fire there, an altar, and and the angel of the Lord kind of disappears into the smoke. And later on, you know, Samson is born, and they give him that name Samson, which means fire. And you see that inside of his life, for both good and bad, he's a fiery one. You know, fire can be something that purifies and consumes in a good way, and burns away, and it has a powerful force. And fire can also be one of the most destructive things inside of our world. It could go either way. It could be used for good. It it could be used uh, for evil. And we see, like, with names inside of Scripture, there's there's some significance to it. And here's this little baby of such promise born, the, the fiery one. Is it going to be a refining fire for the nation of Israel or is it going to bring destruction to the land and to his tribe? Do you know for a moment before we go on, I I think there's something to point out here that there's a contrast inside of scripture between Samson's parents and Samson. Samson's parents are consecrated to God. They live in surrender. There's an attitude of worship. they're, They're obedient to the things that God wants from their lives and yet Samson is born and he doesn't fulfill that same family lineage. I think there's two ways to take that. One is that, you know, that God, what Jeremiah 1.5 says, that I saw you, I knew you before you were even in your mother's womb. There's the aspect that God goes before us and that before we ever get the chance to be parents, God says, I knew him and I loved him even before you knew him and loved him. That we can trust our kids to God. There's a second side of it, and it's sometimes the pain that says just because mom and dad do everything right doesn't mean Junior's going to grow up and do everything right. And some of us live inside the heartache of that. and We think, what did I do wrong? Was there something I missed? Was there some magic button somewhere that I didn't push? And the reality is we give our best, and we try to be faithful to the aspect of parenting that's placed in front of us. And even on the backside, we trust our kids to God. And so Zorah and his wife step out of the picture and we begin to read about Samson's life. Three chapters inside of the book of Judges, chapter 14, 15, and 16. And it begins that one of the first things we read about Samson is when he's older, he says, I would like to get a wife from the Philistines. Now that whole concept doesn't fit with us, you know, of how that would even happen, but where his parents were supposed to choose a mate for him, Samson says, I've got a better idea. The very people that I was born to defeat and to rid from the land, I think that's a good place to go and find myself a wife. And so the parents relent and agree to this, and it says that the Lord was in it. I don't know if the Lord wanted it this way or was just able to redeem Samson's choices. But so they go down to this village, and and he selects a wife from there, and that sets sets off this string of things that begins to take place, where he tears apart a lion and eventually eats honey from the carcass of the lion, something again that he's not supposed to do, he's not supposed to touch or to be around. Out of jealousy and anger, after the woman that he has picked out was given to someone else when he left and went away, he ties foxes together and lights them on fire and sends them to consume the olive groves and the grain and the bushes and the vineyards. He strikes down a thousand people with the jawbone of a donkey inside of his anger. He's impulsive. Yet at the same time, God is able to use and redeem some of his choices out of his goodness and out of his mercy. The end of Samson's life, he comes in contact with two questionable women, One was a prostitute from Gaza. The second, um, I'm forgetting her name, but I think it was, it's a little bit longer, like Delilah, so. But the passage we're going to pick up, and we're going to pick it up halfway through the Delilah story, the reality is so many things have taken place inside of Samson's life. This was not a one-time mistake. This was not a good guy falling in love with the wrong girl. This was not a powerful warrior of God who was somehow tricked into doing that which he didn't want to do. This is one area of compromise, and it starts with looking in the wrong place for a mate. It starts with, I can somehow take matters into my own hand. I can ignore this law about touching something impure, and I'm going to grab honey from the lion. Anger that is not under control. And choice after choice, moment after moment, attitude which leads to a further attitude, which leads to a behavior, which leads to a pattern, which shapes his character. I think that by the time Samson meets Delilah, the pattern of his life is already in place. The subtle compromises have become not so subtle and he ends up in a place radically different than where he sought out to be and to go. Judges chapter 16, beginning with verse number 15. At this time, she has already worn him down. She's asked him uh, three different times, tell me where your strength com- comes from. And he says it's from the, you know, you get brand new bowstrings and tie me up and then my power's gone. And she does that and he breaks them. That, that it must be, you know, something with new ropes that have never been used. She ties them up, he breaks them, and so she keeps on saying, why are you not telling me the truth? Don't you love me? He says, it must be in my hair then. Maybe if you tie the braids of my hair, my strength is gone. And once again, he breaks free. And finally, we come to verse number 15. Then she said to him, how can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you have made a fool out of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. I think that would be a good verse for a marriage conference somewhere in there, but that's, uh, we'll leave that. I'm just kidding. You know, just. So he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. Pause here just for a second. I wonder if he's been so worn down that he's willing just, he doesn't care anymore if his strength leaves him because if I tell her, I know what she's going to do. It's been tried three times before. I've been bound and the enemy's going to come in. I know what I'm dealing with. So either has it gotten so bad that he's willing to give up Or has it gotten so bad that he thinks his strength is his strength? And he can even test God by saying, yeah, the Nazarite vow, that's what they said it was for, but I don't really believe it. So I'm just going to tell this nice story, but I know tomorrow when I wake up, I'm still going to be just as strong regardless of what they do. I think that might be the case because read on with me. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she went, she sent word to the Philistines, come back once more, he has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with silver in their hands, the amount that they had bribed her and promised her for the information. After putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him, and his strength left him. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. We know that he has to notice that he doesn't have any hair. And he still thinks he has the ability to go and do what he's always done. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. The Philistine seized him, gouged out his eyes, took him down to Gaza, binding him with bronze shackles. They sent him to grinding grain in the prison. Worn down and he says everything. And and again, I don't know, it could be that he's just ready to give up. Or it could be that he thinks... All the strength that he has is just his and his alone. Who cares if they shave my head because I know who I am and what I have and how strong I am and what I can do and that nobody's going to be able to stand against me. Maybe one of the most tragic verses inside of the Old Testament. And he didn't know that the Lord had left him. He wasn't even aware enough of the presence of God to know that something was different, that the one who had given him strength, the one who had such a, a calling, and a powerful identity placed upon his life, Samson's actions, one at a time, had created a wall between, this was not God saying, I no longer have time for Samson, this is Samson saying over and over again, I no longer have time and room for God inside of my life, and eventually God gives him what he's been asking for, for the past 10 or 20 years of his life. He's seized and his eyes are gouged out, he's bound, and now at this point he's, grinding mill and a grain, and he's just a punchline, a spectacle for the Philistine rulers to show the people. You know the story, he prays for one last anointing from God, one last opportunity to maybe perhaps fill the mission for which God had given him, and maybe as a sign of grace and something also that points towards the reality of what takes place at the cross. God allows this, and and gives Samson one opportunity, and there inside of one moment with with a pillar in each hand, he pulls the temple of Dagon down and kills more Philistines in a day than throughout all the days of his life previously. See, Samson was still able, by the mercy of God, to still do what God had called him to, but it was a much different story than it could have been. And I think, again, it's not because of one big Huge, cataclysmic, sinful moment. It's because of a moment of compromise, followed by another, followed by another that sets patterns and behaviors that eventually shapes his character to the point that there's no room or receptivity to who God is inside of his life. I wonder if that's what Romans 1 speaks about then. It says that God gave them over to the desires and to the decisions and to the patterns inside of their life that they had one after another put into place eventually God says okay if that's what you want if that's who you are then okay such hope and promise a calling a lineage the faithfulness of his parents but it begins to erode away decision after decision again we could get lost or think that this doesn't apply to us because of the the details of Samson's story, but I think if we bring it home, we recognize that compromise comes in that same shape and form, that it's just one thing after another. In fact, I think we could define compromise as that gap between who you are and who you want to be. It's that gap between who you are and who God created you to be. It's the gap between who you are and who others think you are. It's the gap. The gap between who you are and who you want to be or who God wants you to be or even just the gap between who we really are and who we portray ourselves to be in the eyes of other people. I think we need to pay attention to the gap. I think we need to make sure that we don't live lives that are just oblivious to the gap that sometimes we get trapped inside of our own freedom in Christ to think that the gap doesn't matter because after all, Jesus loves me and everything's going to be fine. And again, from the backside, unexpected, we find ourselves blindsided that eventually we become someone that we never thought that we would be. First sins set the pattern and the pathway for second sins. Little, Little things, little sins have big consequences. And hidden sins eventually reveal themselves and are found out. Broken promises and white lies. Subtle sins, lack schedules that keep us from doing what's really important, a little extra indulgence, flirting with disaster in places that we know we shouldn't be, a subtle compromise, a half-truth, a rationalization, an excuse, added up over time, takes us where we don't want to be. Your character is the thing that best defines who you are and how one day when your life is reduced to an adjective, it is all that people will talk about about you. Your character is the most important thing about who you are and the legacy that you leave. The good news is your final chapter is not written yet. If you're still breathing, your character is still in transformation and is still up for grabs as far as what the final verdict is couple of signs of compromise before we wrap up with some handles. There's a growing gap between your private life and your public life. That gap is, again, between who I really am and who I project myself for other people to think and see me as. Sometimes you're hiding things, you're covering up, and maybe, again, it's just a subtle cover up, but it's, again, we don't want people to see who I really am because we know that there's a growing gap there. You justify bad decisions, reactions, actions, and everything's not as it appears. And as we've talked about for the past three weeks, your life becomes all about you. So what do we do? Here's four things I want us to think about. Uh, Again, this does not mean compromise will never happen, but I think these are things that we want to build into our lives. The first is you have to work at your character. Your character is not just the sum of all these things that take place, and I really have no you know, I can't do anything today to shape my character, it's just kind of what takes place over the next eight months, and so there's really nothing I can put on my to-do list today about character, it's just what it's going to be. The reality is that your character is, is a result of statements you make today, actions you take today, attitudes you allow and even feed inside of your life today. Opportunities where you either follow God's prompting inside of your life or put up a subtle wall that says, no thanks, not now, maybe later. Michael Wilcox says, there is no such thing as a harmonious coexistence between the church and the world. For where there is no conflict, it is because the world has already taken over. In other words, I think conflict inside of your life is good because you know that there is that which God is trying to do inside of your life and the pattern of the world that's pulling you. And Wilcox says that when you get to the point that there's no conflict, it doesn't mean you've gotten to the place that you're so holy that God has nothing left to do with you. It means that you've come so complacent inside the patterns around you that maybe subtly and unintentionally you have choked out the voice of God speaking inside of your life. A little bit of conflict is a good thing. I wonder if that's what Paul means in Romans 7. These things I don't want to do, I do. And these things I do, I don't want to do. And, you know, there's this conflict of the Christian life that, yes, there's victory available. But the conflict also means that there's an emerging frontier inside of your faith where God is trying to do something. Do you know Delilah's name literally means a woman of the night? And We could take and define then whether that, you know, is her occupation or just the meaning of her name. And so isn't it interesting inside of this situation you have the fiery one against the woman of the night and who wins inside of that conflict. Number two, voluntarily and intentionally limit yourself. Now pay attention would be here because one of the things we hear inside of our Christian world today is it's all about the freedom you've been given in Christ. Sometimes that's because we grew up in a generation or The generation just before us lived in legalism and rules and bondage, and we think, I don't want any part of that. Jesus wants wants me to be free and to be happy, and I can do what I want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. The reality is every one of those laws, those restrictions, those rules, whatever it was that was in a former generation, was probably put there initially for someone to safeguard their spiritual life before God. And so, for instance, um, Rachel grew up Nazarene, and so there were no movies, there was no dancing, uh, along with some other things. That was probably put in place initially because someone said, we're going to self-limit ourselves so, th- so that we can live in all that God has for us. Now, eventually, Rachel and her peer group decide to be rebels, and they decide they're not going to do that, but that's another story, so. By the, by the way, did I ever tell you that I pay my kids a dollar if I use them as a sermon, sermon illustration? I do that because I don't ever want them to resent being you know, talked about or living as pastor's wife, so I think I owe Rachel some money today. But um, <laughs> Anyway, every one of these standards grew out of an initial heartbeat. Now maybe when it gets handed down it becomes legalistic and external and a rule, but the reality is almost all those things I think probably started because someone wanted to be concerned with how do I create space for God to be able to do what he wants to do inside of my life. And so to do that means I'm going to willingly and intentionally step away from some things that may not be sin, that may not be evil, that may not be born of the devil, but are just things that maybe get in the way of me knowing God better. And I don't think that that's dancing. For me it is because I can't dance, and so that's one of the things I'm going to intentionally and willingly step aside from for the sake of the gospel. No, it's, um, I just can't dance. Um, but I think inside of all of our lives, there should be something that you can do, that you're allowed to do, that you're not going to go to hell if you do, but that you are willingly stepping away from because of where it might lead, what it opens, or what it keeps you from in Christ. I don't think that's a relative thing, but I do think it is a personal thing. And I think for all of us, we have to look at what are the the wounds inside of our past. What are the things that have taken us down in in recent years? Where are the places that when I go, I end up not acting like the person I want to be? What are the environments or the behaviors that don't really add to godliness inside of my life? And where is it maybe just one or two? What are the things that I think to voluntarily set aside from and to abstain from and to step away and not build as a part of my life leads me towards being more of who God wants me to be? Am I trying to measure up, make God love me more? No, but I just want to create space to be the person that eventually, at the end of my life, I want to be. Number three, take responsibility for your spiritual life. You know this. I don't have to convince you of this. You are in church today when you could be other places. But it is not your small group leader's job to feed you. It is not the church newsletter's job to feed you. It is not even my job to feed you. The reality is if you are in Christ, you are to be a self-feeder, to develop your prayer life, to read your Bible, to surround yourself and build relationships into your life to take responsibility for your spiritual life and what God is doing in in your life to set yourself in the right pathway for that. And your small group leader and me and and other publications were there to support that. But I cannot make you grow as a Christian. Your prioritizing your spiritual life and owning your spiritual life allows you to grow and become more like him. And finally, number four, Tell the truth. I think I've shared before that I, I read somewhere that uh, someone said if Christians just kept their promises and told their truth, told the truth, it would transform society. Let's uncover what it means to have a radical commitment towards truth-telling. Not being a jerk just in the name of truth. You know the, you know the difference when it comes up. But even when it's easy, again, we commit to, we want A, B, and C to be a part of our life except when it's easier or more convenient or more attractive to do X, Y, and Z. Sometimes that's why we lie. We're not lying to get a million dollars. We're not lying to become the next you know, CEO or get the corner office. A lot of times we're just lying because it's a little bit more inconvenient than telling the truth and it's not going to hurt anybody anyway. Except over time, it helps shape who you are. And how people understand you and know you. What would it look like if we did those things? Worked on our character, voluntarily and and intentionally limited ourselves, took responsibility, and told the truth. I think it begins to close the gap. Again, this is not about closing the gap so God loves you more, to earn your salvation. No, it's because if you're already in Christ and you represent him inside of the world, we want to Give him full access to our lives. And some kind comp- of comprom- compromise is just saying, I'm content with a little bit of a gap and a little bit bigger of a gap and a little bit bigger of a gap. And before you're, you know it, you're at a place that you never thought you would be. God still used Samson. Imperfect and all, he becomes a symbol and, and a reminder and a represent, representing and, and a foreshadowing of the cross inside of his death. He was able to redeem at least partially his people from the Philistines. But what would have happened if what started at his life with his parents' faithfulness continued even in a part way through his life? Do you know it's several hundred years later, or a couple hundred years later, that David fights Goliath, who's a Philistine. I wonder what battle would have been there for David if it would have been less or maybe non-existent, or maybe a different battle if Samson would have done his job. But there's a gap between who we are and who we want to be, between who we are and who God has created us to be, and between who we are and how we portray and project ourselves for other people to see. So the challenge of today is, will you close the gap? Not eliminate the gap not become perfect, not become plastic, not become insulated from any type of mistake, but will you just take steps to close the gap? Again, these are subtle things. This probably is not the big, grave, moral failure mistake that looms, but it's the subtle compromise that tomorrow you're faced with, and Wednesday afternoon you're faced with, and next Saturday morning you're faced with. Let's close the gap. Let's pray together. God, I would ask that you would speak very personally inside of things that we've spoken about generally. Maybe there's an opportunity for us to get honest. One of the things I love about Mentor treat is when inside of a safe space, men have the opportunity just to be honest with one another about what they're dealing with. I wonder maybe if one person or or two people inside of your life there's an opportunity this week to have a conversation because I don't want the gap to grow. Maybe it's a commitment to owning your spiritual life and again pursuing what it means to pray and to read and and to fellowship with God's people. Maybe there's some area of self-limiting For you know that when you engage in this, it always takes you down a road that is not who you want to be. Maybe it's time to cut it loose. God, I would pray that you would take these things that we've talked talked about generally. And that you would make it concrete and specific for us this morning. Lord, we thank you for the promises that you've declared over our lives for the mission and the purpose that you've wired into us just like you wired into Samson. Lord, we don't want to miss it because we got too much in the way. Help us this morning to be people who commit to avoiding compromise and to closing the gap. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.